1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And on this Friday, J.P. Morgan goes negative. The firm now saying GDP will shrink in the first quarter as positive vaccine news isn't enough to offset the damage that will be done from recent restrictions. A blip or a double dip downturn? We'll discuss... Plus the class of COVID-19. As more school districts send students back home, it won't just hit the economy right now. It could also hamper future earnings for an entire generation. We'll explain. And it's game on for Roblox. The Pac-12 is losing millions. The authentication station and leaders in a lagging sector.
2: It's all ahead this hour, but first let's get the state of play in markets. Seema Modi has that for us. Seema? Kelly, three hours left in trade and here's where we stand. Markets trying to make sense of the advancing pandemic with the promise of a vaccine, plus those comments from Secretary Treasury Stephen Mnuchin this morning to CNBC on why not to extend some of the Fed's lending programs. Stocks are lower, with the exception of the Nasdaq. We're currently down 140 points, so we are off the lows of the session. S&P 500 lower by 8, and the Nasdaq again up by 17. Now, from a sector perspective, technology higher today, but on the week basically flat in fact energy the big outperformer up around 4.9 percent nearly five percent it's straight it's third straight positive week uh, for the energy sector elsewhere the CDC urging Americans not to travel this Thanksgiving and it is those stay-at-home stocks that are working in today's trade uh, Zoom video Etsy and Peloton you can see some big gains here up five to six percent today but it is worth noting Kelly all of these three stocks still down substantially for the month back to you
1: Yep, it's a pandemic-on kind of trade today. Seema, thank you very much, Seema Modi. We did get two more positive steps on the COVID front, though. Uh, today, Pfizer applying for FDA emergency use authorization of its COVID vaccine, while Eli Lilly's arthritis drug was approved by the FDA for emergency use with remdesivir to treat COVID-19. Meg Terrell is here with all of those details for us.
3: Meg, what happens next for the vaccine? So Kelly, it's going to start making its way through the regulatory process and in many ways it's similar to the process we see for a lot of drugs and vaccines. The difference here is that everything is being done at, at warp speed and, and oftentimes on top of one another. So what happens is uh, Pfizer is going to file today along with BioNTech uh, for the FDA's emergency use authorization. Then the FDA will hold an outside meeting of advisors, this is a group called VRBAC, uh, which will then parse through all of the data uh, and make a recommendation to the FDA after After that, the FDA will make its decision. Uh, Probably simultaneously, a CDC advisory group called ACIP will be weighing in on uh, how to prioritize this vaccine because there will be limited supply at the beginning. We talked with Operation Warp Speed Chief Advisor Dr. Monsef Slaoui about what comes after the FDA green light. Here's what he said.
2: As soon as the EUA is approved within 24 hours, the vaccines will be in the immunization sites and people will be immunized. We will have... As the month goes by, within the month of December, up to 35 to 40 million doses, enough to immunize more or less 20 million high-risk individuals.
3: So Dr. Slaoui talking there about basically enough for 20 million people. By the end of this year, he is talking about both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines together. Pfizer, for its part, says its global supply will be 50 million doses by the end of this year. It's a two-dose vaccine. That's enough for 25 million people. It'll have 1.3 billion doses available globally next year. Now, Moderna, for its part, said on Monday it would file for FDA emergency use authorization within weeks. So we are waiting and watching that as well. And together, those vaccines will get us to 20 million people vaccinated this year. Now, the other news on the drug front, of course, is that Eli Lilly got emergency use authorization last night for its drug baricitinib in combination with remdesivir to treat people hospitalized with COVID-19. Uh, now, this is a drug that's already on the market from Lilly and its partner Insight to treat rheumatoid arthritis, but it was shown in trials to shorten recovery times uh, for patients in the hospital with COVID uh, by one day, which Eli Lilly CEO told us this morning is really significant, particularly when you have have so many people hospitalized with COVID right now. Kelly?
1: And Meg, with the, I think the WHO now saying they're not sure that remdesivir is effective. I thought it was interesting that when Scott Gottlieb was asked about that on Squawk Box, he said he'd continue to recommend it.
3: I thought that was notable as well. He said if he was sick, he would want to get remdesivir. And we asked uh, Lily CEO, Dave Ricks, about that on Squawk Box this morning um, because the WHO essentially is saying the evidence isn't there for remdesivir. Um, he disagreed with the WHO's study that it used to make that recommendation. He also noted that Lilly is running trials of baricitinib around the world on top of remdesivir and on, also on top of dexamethasone, which is that cheap steroid that's been proven to be very helpful in this disease. Um, and so that will be helpful information to have. And I think people will be happy to have a well-run trial uh, to give us answers.
1: Yeah, and happy to have more possible combinations that may work here. Meg, appreciate it. As always, our Meg Terrell. Let's get now to J.P. Morgan's call that recent COVID restrictions will cause GDP to shrink again in the first quarter of next year. This is Treasury pulls the plug on several COVID lending programs. Steve Leisman following all of it for us today, and he's here now with the latest. Hi, Steve.
4: Kelly, good afternoon. You know, predicting predicting a grim winter, J.P. Morgan bringing down its outlook for the first quarter into negative territory, predicting a 1% contraction because of the resurgent virus. Here's what their report said. Quote, the recent restrictions on activity associated with the latest surge in case counts will likely to deliver a negative growth in first quarter 21. The favorable news on the vaccine trials, however, increases our confidence that the economy will expand briskly in the second and third quarters. J.P. Morgan had been at 1.5%. One, one Their concern about the economic outlook is one of the reasons that Chicago Fed President Charles Evans told me this morning he disagrees with the decision of Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin not to extend some of the Fed's emergency lending programs beyond December.
5: I do worry about, you know, we're moving into the indoor season. The, you know, there are a whole bunch of sectors that have been challenged throughout the year, entertainment, travel, leisure, hospitality. So there, there are a lot of challenges and so there, there are risks. It would be good to have, uh, you know, more support coming from all directions.
4: Mnuchin countered later on CNBC that he believes financial markets are in good shape and what's needed for the economy right now is targeted fiscal policy, not loans from the Federal Reserve. Well, who's right? If JP Morgan's forecast is right, that it's just a one point one quarter contraction followed by a strong vaccine fueled rebound, then it's unlikely the Fed the Fed programs will be needed. But that requires, Kelly, a pretty smooth handoff from the virus to the vaccine helped by more fiscal policy in between.
1: And Steve, after hearing from the Treasury Secretary himself this morning, who kept insisting he was just sticking to the law on this and that he wants funds repurposed for PPP and other programs, uh, what are you hearing about the likelihood of any kind of stimulus bill coming in the near term?
4: Well, I mean, he's going to take that money that was over at the Fed and he's going to go back into the general fund. And I think we're back where we were, Kelly, which is it's up to Congress now to figure out what they want to do with it. It's A little easier maybe for Congress to say, hey, we've got $600 billion or so that's already been funded, and they can then begin to build a a, a stimulus package from there. That may help them, but I'm not sure that it's money that stands between the two sides on it. I think it's philosophy, principle, politics, all sorts of things that create a very wide gulf.
1: Yes, it does. Uh, Steve, appreciate it. Steve been tallying things up for us. Let's get back to the markets, where rising COVID restrictions and shrinking GDP sounds like a worst-case scenario for stocks. So why isn't it doing more to sink this market? Joining me now, Angela Mwanza is Managing Director and Private Wealth Advisor at UBS. And Robert Teeter is Managing Director at Silvercrest Asset Management. Welcome to both of you. Angela, I'll start with you. Are you surprised at the market's resiliency here? Although, again, on a day like today, it's the stay-at-home trades that are holding things up.
6: Good afternoon, Kelly. Lovely to see you again. Ultimately, I think there are three key factors that lead us to believe that our clients have less to worry about. We've got political gridlock, uh, well, likely, uh, surprisingly positive news on the COVID-19 vaccine, and corporate earnings and social activity should be returning to pre-pandemic levels by about the third quarter. So all of this is supportive of a pro-risk positioning in our portfolios, and we see upside in global equities take that, pair it with the fact that, that governments globally are committed to a green agenda with their with their recovery programs, uh, we'll see additional tailwind for those investments in environmental, social, and governance spaces.
1: Mm-hmm. Angela, what do you make of the fact that it often takes uh, the stock market to really force Congress into action? And it's not doing that right now. So as uh, anytime you or others outline uh, what should be a, a very positive situation next year for the economy once that vaccine goes out. You know, I keep wondering, you know, what message that's sending to Congress about the urgency of this aid? We know for some industries in particular, restaurants, hotels, you know, airlines, you name it, the need is dire, but it, we're not really seeing
6: that pressure from equities. Why not? That's really interesting. And I think with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and his move to to pull the brakes on on stimulus, that could be indicating the idea that the market is healthy and doesn't necessarily need it. Um, you know, we have the Federal, Federal Reserve Chair uh, Powell saying the opposite. And, and a couple of months ago, he stated that the risk of doing too little is much higher than the risk of doing too much. So rather are on the side of conservative, because we're talking about lives and livelihoods, and that's much, that's much more powerful than purely looking at where, where our stocks are stocks or where our bonds are bonds on any given day. Yeah. Although, Robert, every time I hear the Fed
1: say that, I think, well, then make the Main Street Lending Program easier to use. And you have a powerful weapon there. I mean, it kind of they're kind of caught in this back and forth, uh, this spat, really, um, while people try to figure out the best way to get targeted aid into the economy. So, Robert, yesterday we saw uh, the prospect of some uh, restarted stimulus talks lifting the market. But today that's all being unwound. Where do we go from here?
7: Yeah, certainly a lot of really important front burner issues here. I think with regard to the, the issue of between the Fed and the, and the Treasury, there's no doubt the Fed's done a fantastic job, and it's understandable why they'd want to keep these tools available for much longer. Uh, but when you read through the details, as Steve talked about in the release from Secretary Mnuchin, uh, these are programs that weren't being widely used, and perhaps there's a path to putting these dollars to better work, either directly through Congress or by bringing the parties back to the table to start discussing stimulus again. If that happens and you start to get real... Progress on stimulus. I think the bar has been set pretty low, and we saw that yesterday. If you get progress on stimulus, you're likely to see markets turn a bit more bullish. It's going to be a roller coaster ride between now and end of the year, though, as these stimulus talks go on and off again, once again.
1: What is your advice to investors, Robert? Do they stick with the market of today, the market that has Zoom back in the leadership, or uh, do they rotate into the market of the past week when you know you have these more reopening geared names that start to outperform and become the leadership?
7: Well, I think it's all about time horizon, and it's important to be able to look through this roller coaster ride into next year. I think there's a lot of room to go on the recovery trade. Uh, One of the things we look at is the S&P equal weight versus the benchmark itself. Uh, That gap's only closed about halfway. When you look at things like small cap value to large cap growth, uh, that gap's only closed about a third of the way. So we think there's a lot of room to go on the recovery trade. It may not happen uh, this day or this week, but if you're able to look through a few quarters, a pretty optimistic outlook for next year.
1: And Angela, you agree with that, right? So both of you are on the side of the reopening names?
6: Yes, I, I definitely think we're seeing rotation out of the stay-at-home into the cyclical. But I think we're, we're looking for a more broad base. There's always been this... Everyone's talking about this war between mega-cap tech stocks or the, or the more cyclical value names. Um, and I think seeing a more uh, broad-based recovery across all all sectors is positive uh, and and is a good good sign. But short-term, we're in for a bumpy ride. Intermediate, long-term, we're definitely taking a more bullish stance. All right. Thank you both, Angela
1: Mwanza and Robert Teeter, on these markets today with a whole lot of news to digest. And coming up, it's the class of COVID-19. Remote learning isn't just impacting the current economy. It'll have a lifetime impact on students and risk their future earnings. We'll explain. Plus, the healthcare sector has been underperforming this year. But there are some standouts that may not be on your radar. We'll have those names. And why testing and staffing may be the words you, you hear most this Thanksgiving. We're back after this here on The Exchange.
8: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
1: Welcome back to The Exchange, everyone. As COVID cases surge and holiday travel looms, demand for tests is soaring, and it's putting enormous strain on those administering the tests. Bertha Coombs joins us now with more on that. Bertha? Bertha?
9: Kelly, you know, while testing capacity has been expanding, demand has gone way up as well. States reported a record 1.8 million COVID tests performed yesterday. That is twice the seven-day average we saw during last July surge, according to data compiled by the COVID-19 tracking project. The combination of new infections and people looking to be tested ahead of the holidays is leading to long lines at testing sites like City MD Clinics in Greater New York, which this week limited hours because the volume of demand has strained the health of their own workforce, and they're prioritizing sick patients now over holiday test requests.
7: We're not rationing care. We just want to make sure that those who are sick can be seen. And if they want asymptomatic testing, we can arrange for it too. Um, But they might have to wait.
9: Intermountain Healthcare in Utah has seen a 50 percent increase in testing demand and higher positivity rates, including among its staff. A quarter of Intermountain nurses are out because they are they or a loved one are sick or just tired from long hours. That is putting pressure on hospital capacity as demand spikes.
10: I hate it when people talk about percentage of beds that are occupied. Beds don't take care of people. People take care of people. A really important number is the number of staffed beds, and we're being extremely creative at expanding staffing and retraining, just as many other folks are, but that's the real shortage is how many people are there to take care of other people who are sick.
9: They are now getting help from New York hospitals that they had helped back last spring. But Dr. Harrison is very worried, Kelly, that holiday gatherings could lead to an even bigger wave of
1: infections. Bertha, how are hospitals? You know, we're talking about staffing challenges. It's true in testing. It's obviously true in hospitals as well. How are they dealing with it?
9: You know, on the one hand, they're bringing in people from other regions, but they are also trying to use more telehealth. And they've been doing this all throughout the pandemic. They use it both in terms of uh, remote patient monitoring in the ICU that helps reduce the need for using PPP and having people go in. And they are also using it for remote patient monitoring, keeping people at home. So people who are sick enough uh, that need to be monitored but can stay home, that helps them also uh,
1: reduce the need in the hospital. Smart and maybe would help reduce the spread too, hopefully. Uh, Bertha, thanks. Keeping tabs on it are thanks. Bertha Coombs. The testing system, the hospitals may be strained for now, but the economic strain on students could be felt for years beyond this pandemic as a result of virtual learning. Elon Moy joins us now
11: with that story. Elon? Well, Kelly, in education circles, are calling it the COVID slide, kids falling behind in their academic progress because of the pandemic. Now, we can see this clearly in the data. McKinsey's study shows that already students have lost an average of 6.8 months of learning so far. But a lot of parents, including Terry Mikos in Illinois, are seeing this play out in real time in their own households. Her son was only in school for about 10 days this fall before all the kids got sent back home.
12: I can see the slide going down. I can see him and his workbooks finishing and just doing anything just because his teacher's not checking it.
11: Um, So we have some good days, but we have a lot more bad days. McKinsey estimates that students could lose on average between sixty dollars and $80,000 in lifetime earnings because of this disruption. And when you multiply that by millions of kids across the country, you're looking at a hit to GDP of up to $271 billion by the year 2040 when all these kids would be in the workforce. And Kelly, experts tell me it's going to be really hard for all these students to catch up both ec- ac- academically and economically. Back over to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, the only the sort of silver lining is that they're all in it together. So you hope that the schools can kind of come up with some plan. But it's obvious the damage that's being done, Elon. I mean, I know people whose kids, you know, next town, this town, they're, they're playing video games while they're streaming class. Because at some point, who has the attention and the, and the focus is that they're staring at that screen all day. And I, I mean, that's in, here in places with a lot of resources. I can't imagine what's happening uh, for kids on the lower end of the, of the income spectrum.
11: Yeah, certainly I can tell you my kindergartner does not have that level of attention span, Kelly. But when you said that all kids are in this together, that's the part that is actually really troubling because you're seeing a real divergence between kids who have resources and kids who don't right now. And the pandemic is worsening what has already been a persistent and stubborn achievement gap between high and low income kids, between minority kids and other students. You know, minority kids are falling behind at sometimes even double the rates of other kids, even as high income kids might be doing better than they were before the pandemic because of all the resources and supports that their parents and schools are able to put in place for them.
1: Yeah, given everything that we know about how this spreads, you just would Hope closing schools would be the last, you know, possible thing that you do—the very, very last thing, uh, not the first, as we're seeing around here. Elon, appreciate it. Thank you for bringing that to us. Our Elon Moy in Washington today. Coming up, Pfizer applying for emergency use of its COVID-19 vaccine. We will speak with Senator Steve Daines. Senator Daines himself participated in Pfizer's vaccine study. He's here to talk about his experience. Plus, the IPO market keeps humming along as gaming company Roblox looks to go public and reports a 91% jump in revenue. We're going to look under the hood. Stay tuned and don't forget, you can always watch us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Shares of Pfizer and BioNTech rising today on their application for emergency use authorization for their COVID-19 vaccine. BioNTech is up about 9%. Now, the results show that the vaccine is safe and 95% effective. And joining me now is Republican Senator Steve Daines of Montana. Senator Daines participated in Pfizer's vaccine trial and has now tested positive for COVID antibodies. Senator, it's great to have you. Is it true that your mom gave you this idea?
5: She did. In fact, uh, my mom's 78, my dad's 81, they live right here in my hometown of Bozeman, Montana. And mom heard from her doctor that Pfizer was gonna be using Bozeman as one of their uh, trial sites. There were several all across the country. And so I went online, I enrolled, see if I could get into the trial. This was back in uh, in August. And I received my uh, my first uh, first vaccine on August 27th.
1: So Senator, I, I have to, to tip my hat to you. I mean. I don't know if someone came to me and said, do you want to participate in this vaccine trial knowing how urgent the need was and you know, how rushed it was. If, if I and So tell me about, I mean, you have a background in, in biotech, right? You were an, an executive in the industry. Uh, did that increase your comfort level? And uh, you and your wife both did it, right?
5: We did. Well, I, I have a science background. I'm a chemical engineer by degree. I worked for Procter & Gamble uh, for 13 years after I graduated from college in fact, I used to be involved in, uh, in launches of FDA regulated products. And the, the, the science is very compelling. The science is very clear. And this was a phase three clinical trial with Pfizer, which means they've been through phase one and phase two. There's been a lot of testing done. This phase three trial that I participated in had 43,000 participants. And I received the first vaccine August 27th. And then about three weeks later, they administered a booster shot. And then I had the uh, antibody test in October. And I'm very thankful I had very strong uh, COVID-19 antibodies, which means I've got the protection. And as the results have come out, it's shown that this particular vaccine is 95% effective. This This is great news for the American people. Uh, This is how we bring an end to this pandemic. And the reason my wife and I participate in it is is we want to help build confidence and trust uh, in these vaccines. Because if you look at the history of pandemics, it is vaccines that bring an end to these pandemics. I think about polio. Uh, It was in 1953 when Dr. Jonas Salk announced on radio then that he had a vaccine. The American people cheered to lift the spirits. And uh, I see that Pfizer today has submitted their EUA, their Emergency Youth Authorization request to the FDA. This could be a tremendous Christmas present for the American people.
1: One more question about your experience. Um, Did it hurt? And did you experience any side effects? Did the the shot itself uh, cause any unusual
5: pain? Yeah, no, it didn't. Uh, I typically get the flu shot every year. Uh, And it reminded me of getting the flu shot. It was was virtually painless, the the vaccine itself. I had a little bit of a sore arm for a couple days. And then I had slight chills about a day after the last few hours. They resolved. I felt completely fine uh, the next day. Uh, And that was probably an indicator that I actually had the vaccine because about half of the participants in the trial received a placebo, about half the actual vaccine. It was a blind trial, so they wouldn't tell you if you were getting the actual vaccine or not. But uh, my experience with the vaccine was similar to with a flu shot.
1: And thank you for coming on to tell us all about it. And I I think it it increases my confidence to know the way that you guys signed up for this and and the experience that you went through and everything. But... um, you know, everything that we know about what Pfizer has told us has, I think, given a lot of a lot of hope. Um, I want to just ask you a quick political question before we have to let you go. And it kind of goes back to the issue surrounding the pandemic. You know, we're at an impasse over fiscal stimulus. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin is trying to repurpose funds, I guess, from uh, the Fed into PPP and other programs. Is that maneuver likely to work? Are, are we gonna get anything passed here in the near term? And please give me as realistic and, and non-political an answer as you can.
5: Sure, happy to. Uh, I spent 28 years in business before I got involved in politics, so I'm used to results and, uh, and, uh, and outcomes you work hard against. I, uh, I was on calls this morning with many Montana businesses. They're struggling. We're entering a period of time, I think, over the course of the next several months, the winter months, with higher COVID rates, tougher times economically. We need another targeted package. And so I I think the discussions are ongoing. Republican side wants a targeted package. Nancy Pelosi wants this giant package that includes bailing out uh, blue states that have had uh, fiscal problems before. But I'm cautiously optimistic, Kelly, we're going to get something. Uh, We need to. And uh, there's an appetite on both sides to get something done. Now that the election's over, I'm hoping the temperature will come down and that both sides can come to the table and get something done here, ideally uh, before the end of the year.
1: All right, got to just ask you this follow-up question then, Senator, because I, I understand what you're saying, and I'm sure uh, that you're, like many of your colleagues, who doesn't want to go over a trillion and, and that sort of thing. But if we're looking at passing this next year, uh, the makeup of the Senate changes a little bit. You're, would you not vote for that kind of package, or would you ultimately get on board uh, with some kind of compromise, even if it's a little bit more than you than you wanted?
5: Yeah, well... Uh, it's going to take a compromise to get something passed. That's the bottom line. And as long as the, uh, it's, it's targeted, it's reasonable in terms of, of fiscal, uh, some of the fiscal issues we're concerned about in terms of debt, uh, I'll likely support it. The bottom line is uh, we need another package. We need a bridge. Uh, the PPP loans and grants were tremendously effective and helpful for businesses, small businesses across our country and uh, you know, before we get the vaccine out administered and, and widespreadly adopted, we're going to need on the bridge, and uh, I'll likely support something when we get something that's reasonable.
1: All right. Senator Danes, thanks for joining us today. And thanks Glad for your participation you. on behalf of the whole country, Senator you Steve bet. Daines of Montana. Coming up, Walt Disney may be looking to bypass theaters for its next big releases. We've got those details. And there's one sector of the market where stocks have rallied more than 50% this week. Some names more than 80%. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to the exchange. The markets are mixed today, but you can get the feel for it pretty quickly if you look across the major averages. The Dow's down 140. We're only 40 points off the session low. We were briefly higher by about 13. But the S&P's down seven right now, and the NASDAQ is positive because the stay-at-home plays are absolutely leading the way. We see that across the sectors today as well. Only a couple are even uh, in the green today, but they do include uh, sectors like utilities, healthcare, communication services, so tech and a defensive bent to it. Financials and industrials, those are your biggest laggards. Want to also quickly mention the price of bitcoin trading at a three year high today, more than 2% right now, up 160% so far this year, but it's closing in on 18,500. Its all time high was 19,921, something like that. But we're getting there, and we're getting there pretty quickly. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for
0: our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. After a days-long hand recount of 5 million ballots, Georgia will today officially certify Joe Biden as the winner of that state's presidential ballot, with 12,284 more votes than Donald Trump. That is a gain for Trump of about 500 votes from the original count. Protesters were at Washington's airport today for the arrival of one of the two top Michigan state legislators who will meet with President Trump. The White House says it won't be a quote advocacy meeting amid concerns Trump is trying to have the legislator throw out the popular vote and appoint electors who would vote for him. A less controversial arrival in Washington as the Capitol Christmas tree is set up on the building's west front. And some reassurance for any children out there who are concerned for Santa Claus's health amid the pandemic. Dr. Anthony Fauci tells the USA Today that all his good qualities give Santa, quote, a lot of good innate immunity, end quote, from COVID-19. Everyone else should wear a mask, according to Dr. Fauci. A little bit of good news there, Kel. Back to you. That kind of year. Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera back at HQ.
1: While the focus has been on Tesla this week as it hit another all-time high, the rest of the EV sector has also notched some huge gains. Take a look at Blink Charging, ticker BLNK. The stock is shooting up about 20% today. It's up 120% in the past week. It's small but growing. Its market cap is now $745 million. Then there's Lordstown Motors, stock also higher today and also having a monster week up 50%. Its market cap now approaching $4.5 billion. It's up 6% for ticker ride. And finally, Nikola, down today but up more than 20% in the past week. It's the biggest of this group with a market cap of just under $10 billion. And the stock was initiated with a buy today at Loop Capital. It's up about 1%. And traders note, we saw very bullish options activity in these companies, including also names like Fuel Cell and Candy Technologies earlier this week. And that potentially signaled this bullish run for the stocks was coming something to keep an eye on. Coming up, eBay's new authentication station, the new Pinocchio and Peter Pan movies may be coming to a TV near you and fighting leaders in a lagging sector. We're back after this with Rapid Fire. Stay with us. welcome back let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today it is time for rapid fire and joining me today are mike santoli leslie picker and eric chemi welcome everybody and first up it's another day and another tech company filing to go public this time it's gaming platform roblox filed its s1 late yesterday the latest in a growing list of companies trying to ipo before year end it's been a hit with kids amid the pandemic leading to a record year US daily active users nearly doubled to more than 36 million in the third quarter. It refers to hours engaged, which more than doubled to 8.7 billion. Leslie, I spent the whole break trying to
12: Google and figure out what Roblox is. <laughs> I, I, I do tell. I think our kids are a little too young to appreciate Roblox, but it's basically this platform where people can create games, uh, users can generate games, and then a majority of their users are actually under the age of 13. So kind of their sweet spot is kids between the age of maybe 8 and 13. uh, They're able to play games. They communicate with each other. They have their own digital currency called Robux uh, that people can transact with, usually with their parents' money. Um, But it's become, as you mentioned, just (laughs) this uh, tremendous, they've seen a tremendous jump in their business, a tremendous jump in the amount of hours on their platform, because during the pandemic, Everybody is stuck at home, kids included. This is the way that they're communicating with their friends, they're playing. They can host birthday parties on this side. They have educational programs that they can do. So kids have really turned to Roblox during the pandemic uh, as a way to kind of spend their time.
1: All right. So Mike, I guess the question is, you know, how much staying power does it have? And to broaden it out, you know, we have seen a lot of companies filing lately. Affirm was another interesting one. Yeah. Um, is there a sense that, that people are, are in a rush to get these done?
8: I think that certainly the market's very receptive. Valuations are pretty generous, and it's certainly a good time to do it. Who knows if it's going to be the absolute best moment and, you know, it's going to get worse from here. But I, I understand why people want to get out here because what the, the shutdown period has also done is it, it kind of raise people's threshold for what they're willing to value certain types of businesses are that have very long-term, you know, growth dynamics to them. You don't have to be earning a ton up front. Roblox is a fascinating example because I do think uh, it is a platform, as Leslie says. You know, my, my younger one was kind of into it at that age. And it's sort of an on-ramp into social media for better and for worse. Uh, and it's very flexible. So games <laughs> pop up. They become really popular. They fade <laughs> away. But the platform and the Robux uh, remain in place.
1: Eric, I'm not sure if I understand it any better now than I did before, but look, we always know there's a new (laughs) video game hit in town. I just wonder how much staying power this particular one's going to have.
10: Well, well, the idea here: this is more of a platform rather than a particular game. And there's all these developers, like we have the graphic <laughs> up right now. Over 250 developers have made 100 grand creating these games on the platform. But like uh, Mike said, for better or worse, I've I've read about Roblox. There's a lot of seedy, sketchy things that you do not want your kids getting involved with on this platform. Parents who have written on social media saying you got to keep your kids off of this because there are other kids taking advantage of younger kids for money and doing weird things. So, <laughs> so I'm nervous about. I think it's a problem, but again, it's an entryway to social media for better or worse. There's the good, there's the bad, and there's people trying to make money off the platform. Right.
1: Right. They're like, who ever thought we'd say to the kid, just hurry up and get on Instagram? <laughs> I guess that's the world we're in. All right. Let's talk about what's, uh, some of the major changes we're seeing to movie theaters in the meantime. Disney could change the way it releases new movies, according to Deadline Hollywood. They're now considering pivoting to streaming premieres on Disney Plus for some of the upcoming film releases, as Warner Brothers just announced that Wonder Woman 1984 will be released on HBO Max the same day it hits theaters. Deadline says Disney could release on Disney Plus live action remakes of Pinocchio, Cruella Deville, and Peter Pan, unclear if the movies would be free to Disney Plus subscribers or if there would be an extra charge like they had for Mulan. Mike, it's not that the concept is new, and Disney told us they were kind of re-engineering the business to be streaming first, but if they're really now uh, going to send these movies to your TV uh, coincidentally with the movie theaters, I mean, that's a, a huge headwind, obviously, for theaters, don't you think? For
8: sure. Uh, for theaters, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, a further squeeze. Uh, I understand this is an in-between period for these companies to be making these decisions because these are movies in production that were financed and conceived as big box office winners. So they were they were based on the old economics so when you could expect or hope for people worldwide to be in theaters and making your money back in these. So now it's what do you do with them? Are they just a stranded asset and can you use it to bolster uh, the streaming service? I think from Disney's perspective, they've seen how the market is willing to value growth in Disney+. Plus. And it's actually way more generous then the market will typically value box office profits, at least on a one-year basis. So I don't think it's that tough a decision to make them accessible this way. I just wonder what happens down the road. For Are you going to spend that much money to make one of these huge blockbuster-type productions if really this is going to be the outlet for it? And so is it going to be rescaled over time?
1: No, it's a great, it's a great point, because obviously that would have reverberate throughout the entire Hollywood ecosystem. Leslie, what would you add to that?
12: Well, I would just say I wonder what this means for the types of movies that would be produced. Because if you think about it, you know, the holidays are coming up. When I'm together with my family, which won't be the case this year, but in a normal year, you know, we might sit around and say, hmm, we should go see a movie this afternoon. We check out and see what movies are playing, maybe watch some trailers, pick out a movie that way. Uh, In this new world where things are going straight to streaming, it's really, really hard to kind of uh, rise above that and get noticed from people. So you have these kind of live-action remakes that are big blockbusters, that can do well in this format. But what about that movie that you may not have seen otherwise, but you kind of decided, I want to go see a movie tonight. And so you found it that way. I just have to wonder what it means for kind of discoverability of content, what it means for the types of movies that will be produced in the future. Uh, And then, of course, as Mike mentioned, what it means for the movie theaters and just that experience as a whole.
1: Yeah, well, speaking of changes in content, uh, let's talk a little bit about one area. And this would be true for Disney, what's, what's happening with ESPN. But uh, kind of a way of giving us a sense of what's happening with live sports. Apparently, the Pac 12 is getting hit really hard in the wallet by the pandemic. According to Sportico, the conference is losing $5 million in TV revenue for each football game they cancel this year. It's already been forced to cancel five games in just three weeks. Remember, they got a very late start. Uh, that includes this weekend's matchup between Arizona State. And Colorado, a big financial hit, Eric, And I'm curious, you know, how it affects uh, each school in the Pac-12. Uh, you know, it's going to be years, right, that we're dealing with the fallout from lost revenue. And I can't imagine if the Pac-12 is at 5 million, what the SEC is.
10: Right, so this is a real problem. It's gonna have a lot of trickle effects. So you look at the Pac-12, if it's five million a game, because football, college football is basically almost all the revenue that a major conference makes across its entire athletic department. So five million, let's say you split it equally on average for all 12 teams, $400,000 per team for any game in the conference that gets canceled. So what does that mean? we got to cut sports. You look at Stanford. They're getting rid of a lot of sports. A lot of athletes are saying, hey, don't get rid of all of these lower-tier, lower-financial sports. Like We still want them. They're good for us. The Pac-12 is finally saying, hey, you know what? If we don't have a game for you, maybe you can go schedule a game with a non-conference opponent a couple days in advance, but you have to put it on ESPN or Fox Sports because guess what? They're the ones writing the checks. So (laughs) the conference is very desperate. They did a game last Sunday, 9 a.m. local time between UCLA and Berkeley Berkeley just came out of quarantine right off the plane, right to the game because their opponents each canceled. They said, all right, we'll take the other two teams. You guys play on Sunday. They're very desperate right now.
1: Oh my gosh. And at 9am local time, Mike, I mean, and I guess to hear those numbers in context, every time we hear that one of these colleges is losing $400,000, you think that's another scholarship. Uh, that's another potentially entire sport. That's not going to exist next
8: year. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's sort of, you know, desperation layered on top of desperation, because, of course, the networks need the content, too. The schools, I I do think you have a legitimate question as to whether it just lowers their threshold for being willing to take the health risk of staging a game uh, just because you have to check off that box and say, hey, we we filled the slot. Give us give me the, the, the five million bucks at the conference. So uh, it's it's a little bit messy. I don't know if it's going to cause these schools down the road to reevaluate how important things like TV, sports and football are to their overall budgets. But, you know, that's that hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's not ever going to happen.
1: But they I know we have to on Eric, but they don't really have any other option, like you said if this, if this is their budget, this, they, they don 't have any other option, do they?
10: This is their budget for now. this is what's been baked in for the last several years on the current TV contract. What Mike is saying might be a decade away. a lot of this stuff has been baked in for years.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, maybe by that time i don 't know someone else pays up, but it 's still the same problem. hopefully it's just such a a once in a generational thing. All right, before we go, eBay has officially opened its first drive-through to authenticate items. The company's authentication station in East Hollywood allows customers to drive up in cars with items they wanna sell, while eBay has experts on hand to evaluate and verify their authenticity. Once items are verified, customers get a cash offer that they can accept or deny all while staying safe in the car, eBay recently launched this authenticity guarantee, which is a push to make sure that more expensive goods like luxury watches and sneakers are authentic amid the e-commerce boom. Mike, it was seen as kind of a a play at the likes of StockX and some of these platforms that have become really successful is it going to work for eBay? Is one authentication station going to fix that for them? Or how many of these are they going to need? And and what kind of economics is that?
8: Well, I wonder if it is, you know, at least largely marketing and the attention on the idea that it is a good platform where you might want to sell either rare or collectible or valuable items uh, or something like that. I do think that they want to reinforce the idea that eBay is the place to, to transact in those things. And maybe that's, most of what this is, although I can't help but think of the eBay store and the forty-year-old virgin, which at the time was kind of a novelty, uh, and you know, where you just <laughs> nice. kind of went and just figured out what what somebody threw on the shelves. This is a little more sophisticated, maybe.
1: Eric, we've had some experience with like the real real, and you know. It- There is a problem where you sometimes send your stuff into to to some of these newer um, sites that have cropped up and then they kind of give you the price and it. You you don't really have an option. So great. You end up getting, you know, 50 bucks for for one shirt or whatever. and, And frankly, that's pretty good.
10: Right. I mean, to me, this this reminds me of Antiques Roadshow, right? You show up. Some guy praises it, says this is legitimate <laughs> or you got ripped off. This is what it's worth. So this is the modern day version of Antiques Roadshow. We've got to get cameras down there. Go to the eBay authentication station. Let's see what kind of junk people got. Maybe we can make some deals. Feels like CNBC Friday nights right there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not a bad idea. Leslie, I'll give you the final word on all this.
12: Yeah, I would agree. It's either the 40 year old Virgin or CMC Friday nights or just your good old fashioned thrift store shopping. But I will say for eBay's model, this dramatically changes things if they do plan to make this at scale, because it means that they're going to be holding these items on their balance sheet as opposed to just being a platform where people can kind of buy and sell items.
1: All right. Now I'm thinking of who the host should be for this new version of
8: Catherine Keener from 40 year old Virgin. Uh,
1: (laughs) There we go. Uh, thank you guys today. I appreciate it very much. Michael Santoli, Leslie Picker, and Eric Chemi. Coming up here, the healthcare sector has underperformed the market, but there are some stocks within the space that have done really well, and it's not who you may think. We'll have those names next on the exchange. Welcome back to the exchange. Vaccine news may have given certain healthcare stocks a boost in 2020, but the sector as a whole has underperformed. Seema Modi is here with a look at who has stood out. So far, Seema?
2: That's right, Kelly. The healthcare sector overall has lagged the broader S&P by around 3%. Every subgroup in the sector is holding on to gains for the year, but some have far outperformed others. We looked at the performance from an equal-weighted perspective and found out that the top performers within the healthcare sector have been medical diagnostics, research and testing firms. That includes companies like Thermo Fisher Scientific, Dexcom and Quest Diagnostics. Medical devices, instruments, and facilities round out the best performing groups within healthcare. And it may come as a surprise, but drug manufacturers are actually the relative laggards in the group, having gained just 6% so far this year. That includes names like Pfizer. Despite the vaccine news over the past two weeks, it's actually trading negative on the year. So Kelly, despite all the good news surrounding vaccines and drug developments recently, those stocks are still the worst performers in healthcare so far. Back to you.
1: It's a great point, especially as there's been all this focus on, you know, executive stock sales uh, and people looking to see how much these companies are going to benefit, that they're actually the laggards. Seema, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Seema Modi opening and closing things out for us today. That does it for The Exchange. And coming up on Power Lunch, global debt is set to break new records in the coming months, and it could have a tsunami effect on the other side of the pandemic. We'll join. I will join Tyler Matheson. We'll discuss that after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.